Killers always have a story. Linked to their crime might be tales of anger or greed, of betrayal or woe. They might be justification or remorse or pride. Sometimes they will be told eagerly, but sometimes they will be held as unuttered secrets. But they always have a story. The stories I deal with are the special ones, the ones which must be heard and studied and feared. Like the prophecies of the mythological Cassandra, these stories are in fact warnings, and we ignore them at our peril. I am the keeper of the Cassandra Files. Episode 1. A Family of Things the case file of Virginia Isabel Davis. If you met Virginia or Ginny Davis in the street, you might refer to her as an eccentric. She was a slim woman heading into her thirties and might even be considered attractive with the correct application of makeup and a hairbrush. In a Hollywood film, her love life, and by extension all her other problems, would be solved through the removal of the large, thick glasses she always wore and a new, tighter-fitting wardrobe in less dowdy colours. As it was, Ginny Davis went through life largely ignored by people in general, but she found this just fine. It is probably unfair to describe as eccentric a potentially attractive woman dressing for comfort instead of trying to attract the opposite sex. However, the label of eccentric was appropriate to Ginny for reasons other than her clothes and general appearance. From an early age, she had an interesting quirk which would come to define her in the way she lived her life and her interactions with others. Her earliest memory of it was when her parents asked her to choose one of her cuddly toys to accompany her on an overnight stay at her grandparents. Four-year-old Ginny had tried so hard to make the choice, but found she could not. No single toy could be chosen because, according to Ginny, the others would miss it, and likewise it would miss the others. It was a dilemma quickly dismissed by her parents, and a toy was chosen at random for her, quickly packed, and the bag and child were bundled into the family car. Ginny's anguished screams filled the car for the whole journey, and then the house of her grandparents, to the point that her overnight stay was curtailed. Subsequent trips would either involve bringing all her stuffed animals, or none at all. Initially, this was seen as a perfectly rational, if somewhat irritating, childhood quirk. However, it wasn't long before Ginny's inability to decide on toys expanded to other items, and for the same reason. She would go to school with three pairs of shoes in her bag. This was so that those shoes that were not being worn that day would not feel left out. Before long, her school bag also contained items of clothing, toys and other items. And eventually, Ginny needed two school bags and a regular lift to school from her mother in order to ferry the possessions that Ginny could not leave behind to and from her school. Ginny's parents became worried as this behaviour escalated. 
Any attempt to separate Jenny's possessions would be met with hysterical and inconsolable tears. They hate to be apart, would always be the cry. They're my friends. They trust me. In the end, a clinical opinion was sought. Jenny was sent to see a very nice man called Tom, who explained that what she was doing was an unusual form of something called anthropomorphism, the attribution of human traits, emotions or intentions to non-human entities. In this case, it started with her animal toys and dolls, but this expanded to include anything to which Ginny might attach an emotional output. Ginny didn't understand a lot of the words he used, but he went on to patiently explain that it was common for people to attribute human or emotional traits to animals, particularly domestic ones. Tom gave the example of people thinking that a dog was smiling because it was baring its teeth, or that a cat was being rude because it didn't respond to commands. All that she was doing was the same thing, but to objects. He told her it was all perfectly normal, and that it would pass in time. Most importantly, he told her that she shouldn't feel like a freak, or in any way abnormal. This was easy for Ginny, because she didn't feel like a freak, or in any way abnormal. She didn't think that at all. She knew that dogs didn't smile, and cats weren't rude. She also knew that her shoes felt lonely, and her toys missed one another, and her when they were parted. Tom's final analysis was that Ginny was an intelligent, if lonely girl, who needed to get out more and make more friends. Then, in time, she would care less about the feelings of her pencils or playthings and replace them with an interest in other people. Ginny's parents agreed to make sure that she got out more, and Ginny agreed to let them. What Ginny actually learned that day was that if she was to keep her possessions happy, they needed to be together. In order for that to happen, she could not let anyone think that she was abnormal. Firstly, she needed to limit the number of things she took out with her. This was the hardest thing to do, but the most necessary. She knew that her toys, shoes, and all her other possessions would miss her and each other. But each morning she assured them that she would only be gone for a few hours. She worked out a rota for taking her shoes and other items to school and stuck to it rigidly. It was important for her things to know that they could trust her. Eventually, after getting up early and selecting all the items whose turn it was to accompany her that day, she would explain to those left behind that there was nothing to worry about and tell them whose turn it would be tomorrow. She would then apologise again and promise to be home as soon as she could. This routine would be quietly, secretly observed every day, even after she had left school and begun a job. It was also important that she limit the number of things she actually owned. Clothes were fairly easy. Through diet and exercise, her general body shape changed little. But just to be sure, she bought clothes which were larger than she actually needed. She repaired them until it was no longer possible to do so, and then she placed them in a drawer 
in peaceful retirement. From the age of 18 and for the next 11 years, Ginny actually owned very little that was new. What she did need to buy was welcomed into the family of things, and those items that were retired were placed in drawers or boxes and were never alone. Ginny threw very little away unless it was specifically disposable. This being the case, it was her belief that it was fulfilling its destiny to do its job and then pass on like toothbrushes. Because of this, to keep them would actually be a cruelty. The understanding that some items needed to be mortal meant that she never amassed sufficient possessions to be considered a hoarder. Hoarders purchased things at a normal rate and parted with nothing, thus filling their homes with items until it became a health hazard and people from the outside stepped in. When they did so, things were inevitably discarded. Ginny avoided this by keeping a rigid control of her purchases. If she'd been that way inclined, she might have noticed that her savings had amassed to a tidy sum of money, but money was only important if you wanted to buy things, and Ginny worked hard to do just the opposite in order for her eccentricity to remain a secret. Eventually the time came for her to move from her parents' house. By that time, she was easily able to afford a place of her own and of sufficient size to accommodate all her family of things quite comfortably. She bought a house with four rooms, a garage and an attic, but kept to a rigid self-control regarding positions. If one visited her home, one would have felt the house to be cluttered but tidy and would not suspect that Ginny was anything other than a slightly eccentric spinster whose house, like her clothes, were probably a little too large for her. Ginny had left school with adequate qualifications but little ambition. She quickly found herself a career as a low-ranked civil servant in which to lose herself. It offered a regular wage and regular hours, and little was asked of her beyond the basic requirements of a job. Opportunities of career advancement were swiftly and politely turned down, as were offers to socialise made by her work colleagues. Ginny was by no means isolated or antisocial, but the diversity of her office meant that few who she worked with had anything in common with one another, and so cliques or large friendship groups tended not to be formed. Drinks after work, even within close teams, rarely took place other than at special occasions, and Ginny found those easy to turn down unless they'd been booked significantly in advance, and even then she was able to explain the situation to the contents of her home and allow time for it and them to get used to the idea. Ginny's love life was similarly uneventful. Relationships were hard if you had clothes and other items that were expecting you home. In the main, any interest she had in men she tended to dismiss as an unnecessary complication. Ginny never presented herself as someone who was worth a lot of effort on the part of a suitor or who would appreciate it if it was made. As a result, men tended to get the message, and she was grateful for being able to avoid something else which would need her attention when she had a house full of things that already took up most of it. Paul, however, was different. Paul Slocum arrived in the office new to the area. Handsome, well-presented, and not so confident as to appear cocky. 
He took the desk next to Ginny and they immediately hit it off. There was something about Paul which caused a reaction in Ginny which she was not used to at all. She found herself no longer watching the clock as the last few minutes of the day ticked away. She no longer longed to leave the office and get back to her home and her things. She found herself waking early and pacing her kitchen, waiting for when it was time to go to work. When she got there, she found herself watching the door of the office in anticipation of Paul's arrival. On the rare days when he wasn't there, there was a very palpable pain in her stomach. Every time they spoke, she found herself blushing and an overwhelming feeling of warmth and happiness rushed through her. She found herself buying makeup and even allowed herself the indulgence of a new, closely fitting dress. She smiled almost all the time when she was with him, and when he eventually asked her for a lunchtime drink, she accepted with a rush of excitement which no other event in her little life had given her. Ginny could not help but see a certain meant-to-be about the situation with Paul. Since he was a work colleague, they could meet at lunchtime and throughout the day. There was no real need to see one another at any other time, as they were practically together all the time at work. It was an almost perfect solution to both having a relationship and maintaining her lifestyle. The only problem was that she wanted to see him more than just during working hours. Before long, Ginny's habits had ever so slightly begun to change. She started staying later after work to chat with Paul, just a few minutes at first and then an hour or more. Pretty soon other parts of her routine began to slip. One morning she had got all the way to the office before she realised that she had forgotten to reassure her things that she would be back. She ran home and tearfully apologised, promising that such a mistake would never happen again. But it did. After a month, the occasional late finish at work had become almost habitual. Mondays and Thursdays, she went for a drink with Paul after work, as well as lunchtime. One Friday, she even went for dinner. This quickly became every Friday. For the first few weeks, she tried to explain it to her family of things, and to apologise for her ever more irregular hours. But eventually, the explanation stopped, and so did her apologies. It was clear that Paul was as emotionally involved with Ginny as she was with him. The chemistry between them was noticed by all who saw them together, and they made a little attempt to hide their mutual affection. Paul had noticed that Ginny was a private and reserved person with others, and he respected that she seemed to like her life compartmentalised. That he was never invited to a home was not a problem for him, as he was sure that as their relationship went further, that would eventually happen. He assumed that she either lived with strict parents or other potentially awkward domestic issues. Perhaps she was not proud of the area she lived in or had unpleasant or prying neighbours. Although he didn't raise it in any of their conversations, he was curious. He couldn't help it, but he had too much fondness for her to pry. For Ginny, there was another reason not to invite Paul to her home. At first she had planned to explain everything to him about her family of things. After a short while, though, it seemed to her that this might not be such a good idea. The atmosphere in her house had begun to change. She began to not be able to find things when she needed them. This had never happened before, and her home, if nothing else, was always orderly. 
losing a key or a tin opener or a toothbrush was all very unusual. She always knew where everything was. One morning, she couldn't find one of her shoes. She always removed them when she entered the house and left them with their friends in the shoe rack by the front door. That morning, one was not there. This was more than unusual, and as she searched the house for it, she started to get the feeling that it didn't want to be found. But it was almost spitefully hiding from her. It wasn't long before the mood in the house changed further. Jimmy found that more and more items were being misplaced or misplacing themselves. In the main, this was when she was in a hurry, either to get to work to see Paul or when she'd arranged to meet him at the weekend. One day, after her glasses had disappeared, she finally lost her temper and screamed, Stop it, you bastards! at the top of her voice. The glasses turned up the following morning, almost to mock her, and they were exactly where she thought she had left them. Returning from work became something she no longer looked forward to, even on days when she wasn't out with Paul. It was more than the irritation of a family of things seemingly playing tricks on her. She had actually started to feel unwelcome. When she came through the front door, it was like a conversation about her had suddenly stopped and everything in the house was waiting for her to leave so that they could resume it, or simply to laugh at her. When she went to bed, it was no longer as if she was surrounded by a loving and comforting family, but by a more sinister presence that watched her in the dark, with a thousand hate-filled eyes. One night she didn't sleep. The following morning, when she left for work, she didn't speak to her family of things at all, and possibly half hoping that she might be burgled and have her possessions taken away, she left the front door unlocked and ajar, a final gesture of defiance to her family of things which had seemed to turn on her so poisonously. When she arrived at work, Paul immediately saw that she was upset and exhausted. She burst into tears the moment he asked what was wrong. The two of them went into a quiet room while she sobbed while he held her. Although not entirely understanding what was wrong, it was clear that Ginny didn't want to return home that night. Paul lived alone and could offer a couch, or if she wanted to, she could share his bed. This was something that they had not yet talked about, but he was comfortable with it, if she was. When he suggested that she stay at his flat, she nodded. This would be the first time Ginny had stayed anywhere but her own home since a sobbing, screaming, hysterical night at Brownlee Camp when she was six, the last time her parents had tried to make her sleep away from her things. Now she simply didn't care. Ginny and Paul did not go straight back to Paul's flat that night. They stayed at the office until after six, talking while Ginny broke down again and again. Although the prospect of facing her house was distressing, she was still too attached to some of her things to simply walk away from them. They were simple items, a toothbrush and a few other odds and ends. It would take a few seconds to gather them together, and Paul agreed that they would take the brief detour to Ginny's house on the way. Although obviously concerned for Ginny, he was also glad that his curiosity about a house was about to be satisfied. He was also now curious about why she did not want to return to it, 
and what had made us so afraid. Any direct question he asked was only met with sobs, and so Paul decided to let Ginny guide what they did next. He didn't want to make the situation worse with a clumsy or tactless suggestion without knowing the full facts. He was sure Ginny would tell him when she was ready. He kissed her forehead warmly before they left the office, and she immediately felt so many of her fears eased away. They got into his car and drove to Ginny's house. When they arrived, she thought she had sufficient strength to go inside herself, but for some reason the feeling of being unwelcome, of being disliked by her own possession, seemed to have permeated into the whole area of the building. A gate, a pathway leading to the still ajar front door. Even the door itself now seemed to wish her ill. She opened the door of the car and tried to step out, but found her tears welling up again, a mixture of fear, exhaustion and betrayal which she had never had cause to feel before. She began to cry again, and Paul realised the sooner the business of the house was done, the better. He decided to take some control and to fetch Jimmy's things himself. Before she could stop him, he had got out of the car, walked through the gate up the path, and finding the front door open, went inside and closed it behind him. At her trial, the prosecution's case was that Virginia Isabel Davis, known as Ginny, was a dangerous woman who had become fixated on a colleague and murdered him after he tried to break off their relationship. Paul Slocum had been struck by a blunt object, probably a hammer found in the hallway. While semi-conscious, he was then strangled with a pair of shoelaces. The only fingerprints on the items belonged to Ginny. The only person with any possible motive was Ginny. His body was found in a house which was otherwise empty. Ginny herself, hysterical and screaming, had been unable to account for herself or how he came to be there in any reasonable way. Throughout the subsequent police interviews, the only words she uttered were simply, They did it! Interestingly, in the case against her, the police were not able to offer explanation or answers to the questions which still remain a mystery. After she had killed Paul, how did she get out of the house, which police confirmed was locked from the inside? Why did Ginny deliberately draw the attention of neighbours by screaming and banging on the front door? As she was banging on the door, Ginny was apparently heard begging somebody to stop it. If the house was otherwise empty and locked, who was she talking to? Even without cooperation from Ginny, her defence worked hard on her behalf. They challenged the circumstantial nature of the evidence and the outstanding questions. However, their only real chance was to convince the jury that Ginny's now well-known eccentricities were symptomatic of a more severe mental health issue. On the day in question, she had finally broken down and she was not in control of her actions. The jury compassionately found her not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter due to diminished responsibility. The judge ordered that she be detained at a facility which might best care for someone with her particular type of illness. Throughout her trial, Ginny Davis never said a word. 
She is currently a patient at Belsham Secure Hospital. She has a room of her own which she keeps sparsely decorated. She has few possessions, but those that she does have she seems content with. Today her family of things is far smaller, but no less loved. Every morning before her routine of therapy and workshops and counselling, she asks them not to miss her, and she promises them that she will be back soon. It is a promise she always keeps.